Hi, my name is Denea. I'm from Eugene. Um, I think the answer is pretty obvious. We have to switch to renewable and clean energy if we want to have a future at all, um, because climate change is devastating our planet and making less and less of the world habitable. So it's not really a choice of should or should not. We absolutely have to. Hello, this is Bartek from Denver. I believe that there could not have been a better opportunity uh, to move away from fossil fuels. Uh, I think the conflict uh, with Russia has proven how unstable geopolitical um, climate is uh, for fossil fuels. It also shows us how um, reliant and destructive fossil fuels are for planet. Uh, therefore, I think it could not be a better opportunity for us to move away from fossil fuels and go all the way for renewables. The U.S. produces a lot of oil, more than 11 million barrels a day. It produces so much oil and natural gas that, overall, it sells more to other countries than it buys from foreign sources. But a war almost 5,000 miles away has pushed already high U.S. gas prices to record levels, more than $4 a gallon on average. This has lawmakers on both sides of the aisle wondering how the U.S. can become better insulated from global price shocks. This crisis is a stark reminder to protect our economy over the long term, we need to become energy independent. I've had numerous conversations over the last three months with our European friends of how they have to be, wean themselves off of Russian oil. It's just, not, it's just not tenable. It should motivate us to accelerate the transition to clean energy. This is a perspective that our European allies share and the future where together we can achieve greater independence. The president said he wants the country to look toward more renewable sources. But Republicans, including House Minority Whip Steve Scalise, want to see more drilling on U.S. soil. The answer is right beneath our feet. It's time for President Biden to say yes to American energy. So how can the U.S. become more energy secure? And if we produce so much of our own oil, why are gas prices so high anyway? We'll discuss all that and more after the break. I'm John Gwilin Hill, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. A reminder, to have your questions answered on future topics, or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Over this last year and a half, the world's been through a lot. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts. 
Let's jump back into the conversation. Joining us from Chicago is Sam Ori. He's the executive director of the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics and of the Energy Policy Institute, both at the University of Chicago. Sam, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Justin Warland. He's a senior correspondent covering climate change for Time Magazine. Justin, welcome back to 1A. Uh, Thanks for having me. So, Sam, we'll start with you. We've heard a lot about energy independence and energy security recently, but what exactly do those two terms mean? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think you have to really, uh, to understand the the nature of energy independence, energy security in the United States, and, and what political leaders are really talking about when they use these terms, I think you actually have to go back all the way to the 1970s to really understand uh, when this first came onto sort of most Americans' radar uh, and why we think about it the way we do today. And if you think back to the early 1970s, the United States the United States, and countries around the world uh, experienced a major energy shock uh, in 1973, 1974, uh, that was the result of the OPEC oil embargo at the time. And, you know, kind of in response to uh, U.S. and European commitments during the Yom Kippur War in 1973, uh, the OPEC, uh, the the Arab members of OPEC announced an embargo in which they were going to pull large amounts of oil supplies off of the market in retaliation for some of those commitments. And it led to a huge global shock, uh, triggered a a massive recession, uh, soaring energy prices. And, you know, at the time, the United States was, uh, was really starting to import lots of oil. And so this became like a very tangible crisis in the United States, really, for the first time. And in response to it, President Nixon gave a famous, uh, gave a famous speech in which he said, uh, you know, we're going to lay out our goal for American security and American energy policy. In the last third of this century, uh, U.S. independence will depend on maintaining and achieving self-sufficiency in energy. And really, that crystallized uh, an an approach that would define the way that Americans and American political leaders, I think, often thought of energy security in the decades that followed, that it was about becoming self-sufficient and no longer uh, depending on oil from other countries, uh, and that we would do that, importantly, by producing more at home. So which fossil fuels do we produce here at home and consume here, and which ones do we import? Yeah, so, you know, we produce we produce all fossil fuels here. We produce lots of oil. The United States is the world's largest oil producer today. Uh, we're, we're a very uh, substantial producer of natural gas. Uh, we're, we're self-sufficient in natural gas, and we produce coal here uh, in the United States. And, of course, we consume all of those fuels. But I think it's really important to understand the special role that oil plays, not just in our economy, but in the global economy. We are really still in what I would call the age of oil. Oil is the largest primary or largest source of primary energy demand in the United States. States, uh, and it's the largest and most important fuel in the global economy. Uh, and so I guess the, the, the one kind of through line I would put over the, over the decades that followed what happened in the 1970s is you know, we really focused on, really, uh, we made some changes on the demand side, and we should talk about those because they're important uh, in the 1970s and 1980s. But we really focused on, uh, the debate certainly focused on, can we produce more at home? Mm-hmm. And so I think you look at today... And I think it's really, it's really illuminating the fact that today the United States is in a very different situation than it's been at any point in the last several decades. We are producing huge amounts of oil here at home. In fact, the United States is now a net exporter of oil. And yet, just one, the one thing I just want to uh, add on to that is, and yet in this crisis, 
here we are kind of once again, uh, Americans are looking at uh, soaring prices for, for gasoline at the pump. And they're asking this question, uh, why are we not energy secure? And I think you really have to start to dig into, well, why does it not really matter that much? Okay, there are certainly benefits to producing more oil at home, but why has that not insulated us uh, from these shocks in the global economy? Yeah, and I, I think that brings me to the $4 a gallon question. I mean, why are gas prices so high for U.S. consumers right now? Yeah, I think, first of all, you have to realize a couple of really important facts. First of all, oil is priced in a global market. So there really is, when we talk about energy independence, we use that word independent. It's important to ask the question, independent from what? Okay, oil is, is priced in a global market. It is, as I said, it's a, it is the most important energy input to the U.S. economy. Uh, and so when you think about oil being priced in a global market, what that means is these things that happen all around the world affect the global supply uh, and global demand of oil and therefore the global price of oil. Uh, and those prices directly go to the gas pump. The price of oil accounts for, let's say, 70% of the price of gasoline. Justin, how are oil and gas companies responding to the high gas prices and the calls for more drilling here in the U.S.? Well, this is a a very interesting question. I mean, the U.S. oil and gas industry has uh, really gone through a pretty dramatic transformation in the last 15 or so years since the widespread use of fracking. And in the first part of that period, oil and gas companies produced uh, a lot of oil, basically, Using these uh, new technologies to ramp up production, they did so so much that, uh, you know, uh, among a few other reasons, the price of oil plummeted. Um, And, you know, after that, they sort of adopted a a policy, uh, a strategy of being very disciplined with how they spend money. Uh, And so they're looking right now, I was just at Sarah Week, which is the big industry conference last week, they're looking at this sort of very volatile situation and reflecting on the past and saying, okay, prices may be high, uh, and they were higher last week than they are this week, uh, but prices may be high, uh, but we don't necessarily want to invest uh, to produce more because we don't know where they're going to be in six months, and honestly, they can make more profit uh, by you know consistently producing uh, what they had planned to produce, and so the the sort of short answer is uh, they're not really responding all that much to this high price situation right now, uh, at least not in the U.S. Uh, OPEC also has uh, you know uh, which is the organization of of uh, uh, oil producing countries, the the cartel that controls about forty percent of um, global production, has also uh, not responded. So. Uh, there, there, there hasn't been much of a response to the high prices, in short. Joining us now is Senator Ed Markey. He's a Democrat from Massachusetts, and his new bill targets Russian oil imports and boosts renewable energy in the U.S. Senator Markey, welcome to 1A. Oh, great to be with you. Thank you. So to begin, what exactly does American energy independence mean to you? Well, to me, it means that we can rely upon American-made clean energy to fuel our economy and our communities. Um, We have an immediate focus on Russia right now with this legislation that I've introduced, but oil is clearly tied up in this conflict. The 600,000 barrels of oil a day that we imported uh, from Russia, the $20 billion that American consumers sent to Russia last year that Putin can use for tanks and planes and infantry targeting Ukraine. That's just 
unconscionable. Uh, and, and ultimately, we're helping to fuel the corruption, the compromise of human rights uh, around the world. So from my perspective is, in the short term, we have to deploy the strategic petroleum reserve and do other things to deal with this crisis. But long term, my view is that we should not be importing any oil or gas from any dangerous places in the world. And that protects us against unnecessary foreign conflict, it protects consumers, and it protects the climate as well, because we'll be shifting over to non-greenhouse gas uh, polluting sources of energy. Mm-hmm. So, uh, like you said, this bill would pair a more long-term Russian oil embargo with a federal push for clean energy. Uh, why combine the two? Uh, because, just quite simply, if we look at the 600,000 barrels of oil that we uh, import from Russia on a daily basis, that's the equivalent of 16 million all-electric vehicles uh, being deployed in the United States. So. Uh, if we want to back out imported oil from uh, Russia, it's not drill, baby, drill. It's plug in, baby, plug in. We don't need the oil if people are using wind and uh, and solar and battery technologies and all electric vehicles. And we can do this. Uh, the Germans are moving to 65% all electric vehicles by the year 2030. And I wouldn't be surprised if they accelerated that pace, given what's going on in Ukraine right now. So we know what the solution is. It's to unleash innovation in our country. It's to ensure that we tap into this idealism that young people have and the frustration that they have with the preceding generations uh, that we didn't do enough about moving to clean energy sources, renewable energy sources, all electric energy sources in our country. This should be the final wake-up call that we finish this job. So a transition to renewables, that that innovation you're talking about, that would take a lot of time. And gas prices are really high right now. What do you say to Americans who are looking for shorter-term relief? Well, um, the reality is that uh, the oil and gas industry, the American petroleum industry, or what I call it the American prevarication industry, uh, are on the airwaves all day long, every single day, uh, spending tens of millions of dollars on ads saying, have the federal government give more public lands to the oil and gas industry so that they can drill, baby, drill. The reality is uh, that the um, oil and gas industry uh, have not been conscientious objectors to this struggle. There have been unconscionable objectors to participating in ensuring that we uh, drill here on lands that the the American people have already leased to the oil industry. So, for example, um, we lifted the ban on the exportation of of American oil just seven years ago, uh, and the oil industry began exporting to China and importing from Russia for profit. But right now, the big oil industry is sitting on 9,000 leases. 53% of the leases are are, uh, on uh, on land and another 77% of all the offshore leases are also unused. And it's the size of the state of Indiana and they're not drilling on that land, onshore or offshore, even though they have the leases. If they want to drill, they already own those leases. Why don't they drill? And they also 
uh, right now have 6,000 partially drilled oil wells across the country that are incomplete and not currently in use. They can go right to those wells as well if they want to, but they're not because they're seeking to drive up their profits. And what they're making quite clear is they're not going to invest in new wells, but just invest in their own stock buybacks uh, to uh, drill for profits in their own shares rather than drilling for oil or gas on American land. So it's just complete hypocrisy on the part of the oil and gas industry. They are flooding the airways with the message of give us more land, give us more offshore opportunities, but they haven't even scratched the surface in drilling on that which we've already given them. Right. But but what about that average American consumer? We There's the big business aspect, yes. But say, you know, it's the 15th just got paid and now I have to put $80 in my tank to fill up. What's, what's the short-term solution for that person? Well, I know that families are struggling to make ends meet right now. And that's why I propose an immediate solution to draw down costs. And the president is implementing that solution. It's to deploy the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. That's what it's there for. Uh, it was started during the Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter era. Uh, and we import 600,000 barrels of oil a day from Russia. That's the numerator, but the denominator is 600 million barrels. And if you divide that 600,000 a day into 600 million, we could deploy the Strategic Petroleum Reserve for 1,000 days in a row to deal with the oil shortfall from Russia. And we should do that and even increase the drawdown on a daily basis uh, to continue to put pressure on driving down the um, uh, the price of gasoline at the pump. We have to stop gouging by big oil so they can't rake in uh, record profits while Americans pay more at the pump. Uh, we need to implement a, a windfall profits tax uh, on the oil industry. Uh, they are right now garnering historic levels of profits. We should capture those revenues and return them to the American people in, in the form of uh, breaks uh, for uh, the consumer driving around the country, knowing that the last time they filled up the oil industry was just tipping them upside down at the pump, taking advantage of them. That's Senator Ed Markey. He's a Democrat from Massachusetts. Senator Markey, thank you so much for your time. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. Remember, to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com slash 1A. Over this last year and a half, the world's been through a lot. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to fossil fuels, renewables, and which one means more energy security for the U.S.? Lisa emailed, why rush to electric while we still get the most of our electricity from burning fossil fuels? Sam, what do you make of Lisa's question? 
I think it's important to understand the transition that's happening in the U.S. electric power sector. I mean, the, the power sector in the United States has become dramatically cleaner uh, over the last decade and more as a result of two really important trends, the increased production of natural gas in the United States uh, and the and the plummeting cost of renewable energy. And so today, we only get about 20% of our electricity from coal, and that number, you know, just more than a decade ago was over half of our electricity. Uh, so the grid is getting much cleaner. I would say the other attractive thing about the grid is that it is it, we derive our electricity from a diverse range of fuels, whereas today the transportation sector relies on one fuel, oil. Uh, when you're connected to the power sector, you're relying on coal, natural gas, nuclear, hydro, solar, wind, this real, you know, diverse portfolio of fuels that are very stable in price. So, Justin, we know that fossil fuels are also major contributors to global warming. How does all of this talk square with becoming? So, Justin, as you mentioned before, you were at a big oil and gas company conference recently. How are they talking about this future with a push for more renewable energy sources? So there, there, there. I think there's an interesting thing happening within the oil and gas industry. I think the idea that you know that there isn't a energy transition that things can continue as they are forever uh, is no longer something that is widely believed. But I think the question in the industry is, what does that transition look like? And so a lot of people, you know, at this conference last week, were talking about, you know, how can they make how can they produce oil and gas more efficiently? How can they reduce methane emissions? Um, which, you know, are important things, but uh, sort of uh, missing the sort of bigger picture of the need the, to transition. I think one really interesting thing, you know, as we look at energy stocks, energy uh, prices being very high, right? Uh, excuse me, energy uh, stock prices being very high right now, uh, and, and these companies having a lot of capital to invest, where does this capital go? I mean, do they decide to buy back shares, give dividends to shareholders, which is, I think, what the market expectation is, or do they decide to use that capital to invest in, say, you know, really doubling down on, on hydrogen or, or perhaps even investing in renewables? And so this is a really interesting moment. I don't know that we've seen the signals that they are going to go, say, you know, uh, all in on renewables or, or even all in on some of these other technologies, but, but, but this is the moment where they could. So... Uh- Sam, you mentioned that consumer piece, and Dave in Arkansas sees at least one benefit from high gas prices. I think one silver lining of our current situation with gas prices and fuel prices is that it will drive more people to renewals and electric vehicles. And the important thing is for them to become a part of the market as they increase in popularity, the efficiency will increase and the prices will come down. So when it comes to electric vehicle drivers, are they insulated from these high prices at the pump? So I, I want to say that's a, it's a terrific question that he asked, and I think there's two points to make. One is there's you know, lots of good data that shows that when oil prices get high, that consumers invest in more efficient vehicles. Uh, and that's been true over many decades, and is, you know, we can observe that. And so I think we can expect that during this, uh, during this current crisis. Uh, the key is that when prices drop, which they inevitably will, uh, that there's policy in place to continue to drive uh, and send a signal to consumers to continue to invest in efficiency. Uh, now, when it comes to electric vehicles, 
I think you have to sort of parse it out. At the when it comes to refueling your vehicle, yes, electric vehicle drivers are insulated from oil price volatility. We don't really use any oil uh, to generate electricity in this country. So as an electric vehicle driver, you are insulated. That's one of the really attractive things from an energy security standpoint about electrification is that you're insulated from these uh, from high gasoline prices. The cost of refueling your car of an electric vehicle is, you know, around a quarter of the cost of, of refueling a, a moderately efficient gasoline vehicle, and the prices are very stable. Ronnie emailed, how can electric vehicles become more affordable for most Am- Americans? Sam, what incentives would you like to see to make it easier and affordable for consumers and companies to transition to EVs? Uh, I think the first thing to to understand is that the cost of electric vehicles has already come down quite a bit. Uh, back in two thousand eight, you know, the, when these vehicles were first, or this current generation of these vehicles was first coming into the market in two thousand eight, two thousand ten, uh, the cost of the batteries that were in the vehicles was more than a thousand dollars a kilowatt hour. Uh, and so, if you had a twenty four kilowatt hour battery, like in you know some of the vehicles, the all electric vehicles that were coming out at that time, that put the price of the battery at north of twenty thousand dollars, a huge you know, cost driver for those vehicles. Today, the cost of those batteries is down below $200 a kilowatt hour. And I think there's some data out that shows that it's even, even less than that. So technology costs are falling on their own. The real question is, do we think this is important enough that public policy should further incentivize the deployment of these vehicles for reasons of uh, to deal with climate change, for energy security? So I think when you start to think about it that way, I, I think it's it's fair to say that it is an urgent enough issue uh, that policy should support the increased deployment of these vehicles. And there's lots of things that are being considered right now. I think most recently in Congress, there's uh, there were as part of the Build Back Better Act tax incentives for these vehicles. Uh, I think, you know, extending some of those tax credits that were originally passed back in 2008, uh, extending those now and, and potentially increasing the size of those credits is is definitely something to consider. Justin, are you seeing any signs that electric vehicles will become more accessible anytime soon? Well, I, I think clearly uh, there is a you know push to expand production. There is market demand. Um, you know, I think a lot of the issues around cost still need to be addressed, and I think you know the Build Back Better provisions that Sam referenced would have uh, helped to deal with that. Um, so, I, I mean, I guess in, in short, uh, yes, I think it's just a question of does it happen fast enough. Uh, you know, to really try to meet the uh, emissions targets. Frank emailed, I think I'm learning that despite the oil companies and politicians cheerleading about achieving, quote, energy independence, they sell in the world market without regard to the needs of Americans. If it were not so, could we close the U.S. market to imports and exports and let U.S. supply and demand set the price of gasoline? And so the real challenge there uh, is the United States refining system uh, is set up in such a way that it's really not possible for us to just directly consume all of the oil that we produce. The oil that's produced from fracking is uh, what's known in the industry as light, sweet oil. And, you know, much of the U.S. refining capacity that's been built over the last many decades uh, was built to process a different type of oil. And so, you know, we do process some oil at home, some of that light, sweet oil at home, but we also export some of it uh, and import, you know, heavier, sour crudes to be processed in our refineries here. 
on net, we we are uh, we are a net exporter, but there's you know beneath that kind of top line number, there's there is a lot of trade uh, uh, in and out of the country, and so you know I think the idea of of like Fortress America of the United States walling itself off from the global economy is just not really realistic. Uh, the United States is fully integrated into the global market, and it's likely to be that way, uh, you know, for the foreseeable future. And so the real question I think you just have to come back to is, given that, how do we address this challenge on the demand side, which is where we really, you know, particularly in transportation, which is where we're really using oil in this country. And what lessons do you think policymakers here and abroad should take away from this moment? Well, I think... The main, crisis, the, main, the main lesson from this crisis is that the costs of fossil fuels are high and that there's lots of different types of costs of fossil fuels. For the last several years, with oil prices really low, we've been focused, you know, much more of the, of the discussion in, in policy circles has been focused on the climate costs and the air pollution costs and some of those kinds of environmental costs. Those costs are real, but this crisis has been a huge reminder that there's this other gigantic cost out there, which is the energy security, national security costs, the way that our dependence on oil influences our foreign policy. And it's just another reason uh, to, to shift U.S. policy to, to be uh, much more focused on driving reduced oil demand in the economy. And Justin, quickly, what are you watching for next? Well, I'm very curious to see how consumers uh, and, you know, also who are also voters, how they respond to high oil prices, high gas prices. And, you know, what does that mean for the future of climate and energy policy? That's Justin Warland, Time Magazine's senior correspondent for climate change. Also with us was Sam Ori. He's the executive director of the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics and of the Energy Policy Institute, both at the University of Chicago. Today's producer was Amanda Williams. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm John Glenhill, in for Jen White. This is 1A.